Well, for those of you watching from home, just so that I can come clean, the most ex ex excited and exuberant response to the fact that I'm preaching this morning was me. And uh, I just thought, you know, like I've kind of get a bit of a thing going here, you know. Well, it's lovely to be back here, and um, Fliss and I still regard this as our home church. Uh, we've been traveling quite a lot this August, but we uh, watch online, and then when we're not watching online, we're here. Fliss is actually in the kids' ministry this morning, so let's shout it out for the kids' ministry, Maria Romana. Yay! And while we're doing a shout-out, I thought about this before. I really do uh, want to honor Mark and Steph. And uh, would you just stand, please? And Lucy, would you stand as well, representing the kids? Let's just raise a hand to bless these guys. Just, just uh, let's stand up. Let's honor them properly. Just stand up. And I'm going to pray a blessing on them. Do you know, uh, long before Mark knew he was going to be senior pastor here, God had told me that he was going to be a senior pastor. And there were a number of hurdles, and not least he didn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> and I thought, you know, Lord, speak with him, will you speak with him? But, you know, we've never regretted that. And I, Fliss and I, who, uh, in case you don't know, we founded the church just in our front room. We are so grateful that this thing that became our baby, our teenager, our offspring, our legacy, if you will, is in such wonderful hands. And uh, so we do honor you, Helvagians. We honor you, Mark, in your very difficult and challenging role. And we applaud you. And uh, we'll do that now. <laughs> Stay there. Stay. Now, just raise your hands, folks. I just want to pray a blessing in, the, in these difficult and challenging times. Father God, uh, we do thank you for them. We thank you for their extended family. We thank you for Sam and Daisy and Luke. And Lord, we pray now that you'd keep them as the apple of your eye, that you would hide them under the shadow of your wings, and that you would confuse the enemy concerning them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Bless you guys. Thank you. So uh, this seems to have been the summer of the stay staycation. How many of you, just out of interest, have been on a staycation somewhere? Just put your hands up. Yeah, not as many as I thought there would be, but quite a few. You know, I was thinking about our holidays as uh, a family, four kids we had. And, uh, you know, they were much looked forward to and much anticipated but in the early years of our marriage and family, they often disappointed. And it really used to stress me out and stressfulness out. And the reason they were disappointing was very often, I have to say, one of us immediately fell ill the moment we arrived in the, uh, you know, the, the destination. And that actually wasn't funny, wasn't meant to be funny. It was, a, I think, because we were just so kind of out there so stretched that when there was this opportunity to relax, it was like a piece of elastic or something, just going brr, and one or the other of us would just fall apart. Then after we'd got over that on holiday in Cornwall or Devon and negotiating the rain, it always seemed to be raining, um, then, we'd, then the rows would begin. Now, I, just, just I, you may not want to do this, but... If you've ever had a row with your partner on holiday, just put your hand up now. Is it only... Me? Oh. <laughs> a lot more hands have gone up. 
about, you know? And we had some famous rows, and uh, ones that I, to this day, regret, you know? And they were about everything and nothing. Uh, but again, it was just de-stressing. And I remember, you know, the kids were sort of, I don't know, seven, eight, 10, 12, something like that. And I was just thinking, God, you know, we so need a holiday. We really need a holiday. Is, is there anything I can do to kind of, you know, sort of do, you know, to, to make this a better holiday? And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And at that point, he said to me, serve your family. Serve your family. That was a surprise, because I thought I did. But then I thought about it, because it clearly was the Lord in my, my quiet time, my prayer time, and he graciously confirmed it. Serve your family. And what I began to realize was that we were all going away on holiday with differing expectations as to what a holiday would look like. Some wanted to go to the beach. Some wanted to go for a walk. Some wanted to go to a nice restaurant. Some wanted to sit beside a pool and read a book. Some wanted to go windsurfing. We were all pulling away from each other. And so the Lord just said to me, serve your family. And it was not what I was wired to do to that depth. I made a decision that day that I would serve my family. So from the, from the, in the run-up, you know, the prepping, getting all the kids organized, loading the car to you know, the time we were down there, I just gave myself in a very conscious way to serving my family. And you know what? I had a great holiday. I had a great holiday. The kids had a great holiday. Fliss, my wife, had a great holiday, and it unlocked something. So, you know, I realized at that point that there was, there was something of a paradox there, and this talk is, is going to be called The Power of Paradox, because, you know, everything in me wanted to serve myself. After all, you know, I've had a tough year, I deserve it, need a bit of a breather, need a, need a bit of a break, otherwise I'm not going to be able to carry on doing... But the way to being refreshed and to being restored and, 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 you know, healing my family and myself was actually doing absolutely the opposite that everything inside me expected and intended to do. It was extraordinary. It's a paradox. And actually, when we think about the Christian faith, and we're going to be spending a bit of time thinking about the paradoxes within the Christian faith, we see that there is something about a biblical Christian paradox that releases extraordinary power. Now, I don't know whether you caught that little report on the news this week uh, about this new telescope that they... They're always inventing new telescopes, aren't they? This new telescope. And in this tele, what this telescope has done is it's looked out into far and deepest space and uh, they've discovered a whole new load of uh, universes and galaxies, and within those galaxies, they've discovered some humongous black holes, you know, these mysterious things that suck everything in, and nobody knows quite what happens. There's much speculation. But they showed this image, this photograph of this black hole that they had discovered in deep space, and they could see that stuff was being inexorably drawn into it. But what this new camera showed up was that as stuff was poured into it, there was this extraordinary 
energy released. Whereas the black hole, the name gives, gives it away, seemed to be a thing, a drain that sucked everything out of the universe. In fact, what was happening as stuff was sucked in, surrendered, if you like, into that thing, and there was an extraordinary star-birthing release of power. And in the Christian life, when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, when we surrender to Jesus, when we take up his cross, and we'll say more about that later, as we give in, often with our flesh screaming, no, don't do it, don't be a twit. I think I read that word in the Bible somewhere, twit. I'm not sure. Don't be a twit. Actually, it releases extraordinary life-giving spirit to set captives free. Amen? So that's where we're at with this. Okay, another little introductory point, and then we'll get into the, the text of what I have here. I had a call from a friend this week, literally the beginning of this week, and they said to me, Chris, would you mind praying for me? And I said, of course. Yeah, what do you want me to pray for? And they said, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but you know, all this stuff that's happening in Afghanistan, and we had a great prayer meeting on Wednesday evening called by our pastor, our senior pastor, and it was a great time. Uh, you know, all this stuff about the uh, Afghanistan and then all these shootings in Plymouth, you know, this incel thing that's beginning to emerge as, a, as a, a terrorist problem, as some are saying. They, they said, I don't know why. It's, it's irrational, I know, but it's completely hooked me. And I am so anxious. I've, it's, it's triggered in me an anxiety for my family that I can hardly fathom. And I thought, this is, this is weird. This is interesting. Maybe... The season we're in, maybe the, the, the sort of things that we're having to address, global warming, et cetera, et cetera. The scientists are telling us that global warming is, and climate change is, is not a possibility. It's a reality that we're already living in. Can I ask? I, can, no, I keep asking. Put your hands up. If, if you can identify with a bit of anxiety at the moment, maybe this or other things, just... The life we're living, not just the stuff that's happening to you, but the life we're living is creating anxiety. It is an extraordinary thing. Well, Jesus foresaw this, and uh, Jesus spoke to this. And so let's just begin by looking at uh, a bit of Scripture here. And... Um, yeah, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 8. It'll, it's come up on the screen already. Wonderful. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 8. And let me just pray. Father, I just want to say thank you for make it, uh, making it so clear to me that this was what you wanted me to speak on. And I pray, Lord God, that your word, even though for me it's like firing arrows into the dark, Lord, may every single arrow find its mark. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I truly tell you that one stone, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You know, the temple, as, as many of you will know, was the absolute, absolute epicenter of the nation's faith, uh, consciousness, awareness, self-identity. And Jesus is saying it's going to be knocked and for, you know, destroyed. When will this happen? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. See to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, a lot of commentators, a lot of preachers, you know, make much of that uh, and talk about the end times and, 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 you know, what to expect. And Mark, our senior pastor, did a great series on that end of last year. You know, there's, there's a lot that is said about, but I, I really want you not to miss Jesus' instruction to be not alarmed. Be not alarmed. And there's a paradox because the whole world is running around as if its hair was on fire. And frankly, without Jesus, rightly so. The paradox is that we as Christians are told not to be alarmed. What's the basis of that? Well, the basis is the gospel, this good news of the kingdom, the fact that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, through whom all things were created and who is coming again, make no bones about it. He said to his disciples, his followers, Peace be with you. My peace I give you. My peace. Not the peace this world can give, but my peace. You see, the peace that is promised by the world is when you've got enough money, when you've got a roof over your head, when you've got food in your belly, when you've got nice neighbors, when your dog doesn't poop on the neighbor's lawn, you know, all sorts of stuff. And all of this makes up what the world defines peace as. But Jesus says, no, there's going to be lots of troubles. You know, you're going to know persecution. You're going to know difficulty. You're going to have to struggle with life. And for many, as an aside, for many Christians, the fact that they are struggling with life makes the, they begin to question whether God loves them or God exists or God has saved them or what's this God? Brothers and sisters, Jesus said, in this life, you'll have many troubles. But he says, in the midst of it all, wars and nations and famines and goodness knows what, my peace I give you. Doesn't sound like a, 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 you know, a seedbed for peace, but Jesus says, my peace I give you. Now, at the end of this sermon, I've got a rattle on. We're going to spend just a moment, and we're going to stand in God's presence, and you at home as well. And we're going to pray God's peace down on us. Just to break this fear off. So anyway, let me just define paradox. I'm using this word and we all think we know what it, is, uh, what it means. I, I, I've looked it up in a dictionary and it says this. 
a seemingly, the power of paradox, a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded. Seemingly absurd, my peace I give you, in the midst of war and difficulty. Seemingly absurd. Contradictory. But when investigated, may prove to be well-founded. Funnily enough, the world does know of this truth. The world doesn't, doesn't gainsay it, doesn't naysay it rather, but it just doesn't live by it or take it seriously. Here's a few examples of, I'll just rattle off of the world's understanding or insights into paradox. The pursuit of happiness makes you unhappy. You know, if you pursue happiness alone, it'll always seem elusive. Just like if you pursue joy. I'm going to be joyful today. Family, listen up. Quiet down. I'm going to be joyful. It just ain't going to happen, bro. The pursuit of happiness makes you unhappy. Happiness and joy are non-dependent upon circumstances they are a gift of God and often a byproduct of living a life full of self-sacrifice. The world says the pursuit of happiness makes you unhappy. Next, the only constant is change. People are always saying, I hear on the news, you know, changes here to stay, etc. The only certainty is uncertainty. Heard that one many a time too. The more choices we have, the harder it is to choose. Do you know, Fliss doesn't normally iron my shirts. But because I was preaching, she felt all gooey and loving. And she ironed me two shirts yesterday to wear. And uh, because I had these two iron shirts this morning, you know, being the decisive alpha male I am, I stood in front of the wardrobe going, hmm... Hmm. <laughs> I couldn't make up my mind. Usually I just grab what's ever clean. I may look like a shed all day, but, you know, no matter. <laughs> more choices we have, the harder it is to choose. The more you learn, the more you realise how little you know. That's certainly been my experience of the Christian life, you know. I thought I had it down within, like, five minutes. I remember the person who preached the gospel uh, this history master to the little class that I was a part of, it suddenly made perfect sense to me and I couldn't get home quick enough to say the prayers. I knelt beside the bed. Great, glad we got that sorted. But the more you go on with the Lord the, and the deeper you go, you know, the more questions you have, the more, the more you realise you don't know. Uh, last one and then we'll move on. The more available something is, the less we desire it. Ain't that the truth? You know, that's, that's just a secular thing. You know, you, you want something, you want something, you want something. I don't know why, but I, a certain phase of my life, when I was 15 years into being pastor here, the, finally the church got to the point where they said they could uh, provide me with my own car, which is a good job because uh, mine was falling apart. And I really fancied a Honda Accord. Yay! A Honda Accord. So anyway, I was excited. I took some time choosing the model and the church okayed the budget and I bought this car. 
company car. And as soon as I got it, it was like, ugh. It, it ended up looking like a skip on wheels. Anybody got a car that looks like a skip on wheels? Honest? Yeah, often the ladies, isn't it? I'm not going there, Mark. I felt a wave of kind of something there which wasn't quite spiritual. You know. Anyway, whatever. Now, the kingdom of which we are a part and the kingdom which we teach in the vineyard and teach in this church the kingdom which we try and expound, and the kingdom which was Jesus' favourite topic. He was always talking about the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew's version of the phraseology. He was always trying to teach and to train the disciples about what the kingdom was about, as opposed to the kingdom in which we live. The kingdom that we live in as a Christian is an upside-down kingdom, an upside-down kingdom. I believe there's a book of that title. I don't know if it's any good. It's a long time since I've read it. And uh, it, it has all sorts of upside-down dynamics. Let's look at a little text. Mark chapter 8, verses uh, 34 to 36. I think it's come up on the screen already. It's quicker than I am. Great. Then Jesus hailed the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple... Hands up. Great. Forest of hands went up. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, hands slid down, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, hands went up, will lose it. Hands went down. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I still find that challenging. I still like to acquire things. You know, Mark, very, uh, very generously and in a self-disclosing way, uh, shared two or three weeks ago that, you know, he has a bit of a thing about a, a, a fear and anxiety even about there being no money, having no money. You said that right. Well, for me, I still, maybe because for a long time we didn't have anything, I still struggle with wanting to acquire things. You know, if I have a moment, uh, which I often do now since I'm retired, I'll find myself looking at eBay, at garden parasol covers. I mean, <laughs> what? Anybody confess to a bit of a kind of a shopping thing? Yeah, one or two. I shouldn't have come and preached at this congregation. We're all saints here. Yes. Yeah, you know, um, Jesus says, deny yourself. Self-sacrifice is the name of the day. And believe me, I have the great privilege for 30 years of serving here with a wonderful staff, most of whom are still on staff here now. And... There was a lot of self-sacrifice. By the grace of God, you don't build this without self-sacrifice, but it's something I still struggle with, you know. So, you know, this upside-down kingdom runs right against the flow of this acquisitional culture, this need to acquire 
that runs so deep in our culture. Let's look at another little verse here. The need to succeed, particularly in an area like this. We know we serve a relatively affluent area. Um, you know, we, in our compassion ministries, serve an extraordinary number of people who are in real need. So it's not all roses, but in this area, there are many, many people who are just addicted to the need to succeed. But what does Jesus say about that? Mark chapter 9, just over the page from Mark 8, verse 35 says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Why? That's not the culture in most workplaces. It's quite the opposite. That's what we're trained up to. Do your homework. Get good grades. Otherwise, you won't get to university. Blah, blah, blah. From a very early age. There's nothing wrong with this. We didn't say to our kids, our four kids, don't do your homework, you're a Christian. Actually, that's not quite true. One of my kids, Jessie, who lives in Nashville, she was so conscientious, she was so sort of uh, rigorous in her daily disciplines of prayer and work and homework and all that stuff, that I used to put my head round the door and somewhat impishly say to her, hey, Jess, come down, let's watch a few videos and have a few beers. And she used to say to me, you know, 14, 15, she said, Dad, you are so irresponsible. <laughs> I can hear her saying it now. It's difficult, isn't it? We have to do our job. We're wired and rightly so to do our very best job. Jesus, uh, Paul said to the slaves, he said, work hard, bless your masters as if it was me as if it was the Lord himself. We are wired to do that. And yet there is something in it whereby we have to hold lightly to success, that need to succeed. Okay. Let's just uh, take a stock then. Let's start looking at some Christian paradoxes then. There are so many, but these are a few I came across. Given it will be given to you. Given it will be given to you. Luke 11 says, given it will be given to you, pressed down, running over. You know, this, the counter to this need to acquire is a spirit of generosity. The counter to this spirit of poverty, which we've often spoken about in the past, that is, means that you can be incredibly rich. You can have all the toys and everything else that goes with it, and yet you can feel poor inside. And I've often said this a zillion times, that Paul Getty, who was once the richest man in the world, was asked, how much is wealthy? And he said, just one dollar more. That is a hard way to live your life. Hard way to give, live your life. Christians are called to give. I'm not just talking about the tithe and the offerings. Of course we want to do that. That's, you know, as, as uh, Danny said, as Jess said, that's our worship. We do that as an act of worship. It's 
whether it's for some of us, it's where the rubber begins to hit the road. You know, is this just something you do on a Sunday or is this something that is real to you? You know, so we give our gifts and our offerings, our tithes. But it goes beyond that, you know. It's those little, what, what the scriptures call acts of righteousness. It's where you, you give things in secret. You know, there's a guy in our village, I could tell you a lot of stories about this bloke called Ian. I spent quite a lot of time talking to him. He's a bit of a character. And he sits on the wall just uh, opposite the premier corner shop. And he's a lovely guy. He and I have had some right run-ins about faith because he's adamant that it's a load of nonsense. So we have great fun with that. Anyway, uh, as, as an act of magnanimous and hugely generous Christian love, I said to him, Ian, you always sat on the wall here. How about I get you a couple of nice teak chairs to put on your little bit of patio there, and then you can sit on that and chat and what have you. And he actually didn't really want them. I said, you're having them, so there you are. <laughs> so he said, well, okay. Anyway, so I went and got, I had two, actually. I had two spare ones, and uh, they're quite nice. So I brought, took them down there. And he said, well, oh, sorry, yeah, thank you very much, Chris. Oh, gosh, they are lovely, aren't they? Do you know what? That night, somebody nicked them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, thought, I thought I was in a lovely English village, you know, and there I am being really lovely and Christian, and somebody goes and nicks the things that I've just given, you know. But, you know, we do these things. That was a little bit ostentatious. Because, of course, he tells everybody of that story now. He's the bloke that gave with the chairs that got nicked. But, um, but the truth of the matter is, as Christians, we are moved when we see suffering. It's not a, super political, a superficial political kind of thing. It's, we are moved by it. So we find ourselves inclined to, and sometimes doing, quiet acts of generosity and kindness. Because we know our Lord said, give and it will be given to you. We, we give not to give, get back, but I've often found that to be a, an element. Next one, love your enemies. Scripture's full of this. In fact, a friend of mine sent me a lovely cartoon. Let's see, I don't know whether it'll come up, but let's try this cartoon. Can we, uh, oh, here we go, yes. Here's Jesus. Be kind to everyone. Wait, even Gary? Yeah, Gary's the worst. Look, we've been through this. Yes, be kind to Gary as well. Ha ha, suck it, losers. Not now, Gary. <laughs> I love that. That's why in this church, when we teach about loving one another's, we actually talk about learning to love. You know, our watchman ministry going on for 30 years. Every month we change the prayer, watchman. We talk about learning to love because it's, you know, it's easy to love, as, as Paul says, it's easy to love those who are nice. What about those who aren't nice? What, is, what about that rowdy neighbour? What about those whom we profoundly disagree with politically. What about the Taliban? Mm. The rubber hits the road. It's a paradox. Love your enemy. 
love your enemy. Paul observes, he says, while we were enemies of God, because the scripture says that when we are outside of the kingdom, when we are going about our own business, concerned and consumed with our own desires, you know, parking God to one side, we are actually enemies. And Paul says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We'll look at that again in just a moment. Forgive as you have forgiven. Forgive as you have been forgiven, sorry. You know, forgiveness is one of those extraordinary black star occasions. I've met Christians who have carried a grudge and justified carrying that grudge, often based on the terrible thing that this other person did. And in the worst case scenario, it's something that they did to another, a third party. I have met Christians who will not forgive. I could never forgive him. Look what he did to her. And there's a self-righteousness that seems to solidify that. There's a kind of, yeah, that's the right approach. Wrong. I preached the gospel at a church in Nottingham years ago. And I spoke the gospel about forgiving and forgiving all and God's plan is for forgiveness to be for all, even enemies. And at the end of it, two very cross church wardens came up to me. I'm not kidding you. Two absolutely irate and agitated and said, if what you were saying was, I was a visiting speaker, if what you were saying was true, that would mean that paedophiles and murderers and adulterers could be forgiven. I was shocked. I said, yes. These were church wardens. Oh, no, that can't be right. You need to go back to your books, young man. (laughs) Some Christians hold on to unforgiveness as if it's something to be applauded. No. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Our forgiveness is our being forgiven is tied up with the way we forgive. If that's, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and bringing someone to mind, maybe that's something you'd like to bring to the prayer team or press that prayer button. You must be born again. John 3, very famous. Nicodemus, the Pharisee that member of the Sanhedrin, a very well-respected man, he found that paradox difficult. He said, excuse me, come again? What do you mean you must be born again? Can we crawl back into our mother's womb? Jesus said, you must be born again. And that means to be born again through the forgiveness and saving blood of Christ who died for you when you were an enemy and makes you a new creation. A new creation. I've Some of the most memorable moments, I have many memorable moments of this place, but 
When one year we, uh, I can't remember, was it our 25th anniversary or something, we had baptised 100, we aimed to baptise 100 people over the course of a year, and I think we were pretty close. Richard was there, I don't know, about 80 or 90 did, or maybe we did more, I don't know. But I do remember there were a number of people whose personal stories I knew, and that baptism for them was a very profound experience. I didn't know everyone's personal story, but some I did. And for some, it was so profoundly meaningful to them that they could die to self, drown even, as it were, figuratively speaking, and come up again, washed clean, forgiven, a new creation. A new creation. Wonderful moments. Talk about joy. You know, crowd, a sort of, you know, paddling pool, and in an old warehouse, but joy was released that day. Joy, wonderful. Uh, Christ died, sorry, a virgin shall be, a virgin shall give birth to a child. Now, what a paradox there, a virgin giving birth to a child. I mean, I've met Christians who say, look, frankly, it doesn't bother me whether Mary was a virgin or not. It's not the point. You know, what, who Jesus was as a teacher, as a mentor, as an example, that's what matters. And they will wax lyrical about this. Do you know what? They're wrong. You are wrong. It does matter. I haven't got time to go through the verses, but essentially... A virgin conceives and gives birth to a son, and that son shall be known Emmanuel, which means God with us. Perfect God, human woman, as one, Christ is born, Emmanuel, the God-man. And that is important because... When he goes to the cross, he goes as the perfect lamb of God. You know, with four kids, when we were on holidays, we often needed plenty of wet wipes. You know, give them an ice cream and it would go everywhere except their mouth. And you got a fresh wet wipe out. Imagine if you just bent down, got a dirty old tissue from the base of a waste bin and said, come here, darling. Ugh, how disgusting. My mum did that once or twice, not, not been, but spitting on a tissue and wiping my face, how gross. <laughs> you need a clean wipe. You see, if Mark was to say to me, Chris, you're a, my, you're a rocking sinner. You know what? I'll die for you. Oh, it'd be very kind of him, but frankly, Mark's got a bit of a dark history as well. So I don't know how much use that would be. If a sinner dies for a sinner, you've still got a sinner. But if the perfect, immaculate God-man, the Son of God dies for you, if he substitutes himself for your sin, suddenly I walk free. The judgment that was due me was placed on him. That's why the virgin birth is important. Paradox it may be, 
But the more you look at it, the more you realize it's of crucial importance. One more and then we're done. Christ died to save the ungodly, Romans 5. You might like to read that when you get home. Christ died to save the ungodly. You know, if God is, and what an extraordinary concept, going to die for anyone, surely he would die for the righteous, his people Israel. Well, yes, he did. Surely he would die for the Mother Teresas and the Billy Grahams and the whoever else you care to put up there with them. They're worthy if anybody is going to have to die for someone. Well, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with you. But the scripture says that Jesus didn't just die for the righteous. He didn't just die for the good, the great and the good. He died for sinners. Now there's a paradox. He died for the ungodly, but they don't deserve it. Yeah, exactly. But such is the love of God. As Mark reminded us a few weeks ago, John 3.16, I've forgotten what it is. Thank you, for God so loved the world. You knew I'd frozen then, didn't you? (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to condemn the world but to give the world his everlasting life. Now, there's a paradox. My friend Ian, when we're having our arguments, he's always going on about how good I am. And I keep saying to him, I'm not good. Ask Fliss. I'm not good. And he said, well, to be honest with you, I can't agree with Christians. I mean, there's a little chapel just across where he sits. They come over me and they tell me that, you know, I need to... Consider my soul. Well, I've, I've considered my soul, and I'm, you know, I'm not a bad bloke. I'm one of the goodies. And I said, I'm sure you are, and you're probably being modest, Ian. You're probably very good. But the truth is, that's not what God is looking for. God is looking for a humble heart, a heart surrendered, a self-sacrificing heart, a heart that gives itself to Jesus and says, deal with me as you will. I throw myself upon you. The paradox of God. The paradox of God. I invite you, if you've got a little time in this strange season, to spend a bit of time going through the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, and looking for other paradoxes. And you will begin to understand that truly we are living as followers of Jesus in an upside-down world. I, I had to savagely edit my list, otherwise we'd be here all day. And it sometimes makes the flesh creep. But the truth of the matter is, as we surrender, as we die to self, if you will, life begins to fill us. Life in all its fullness, John 10.10. For Jesus came that we might know life, life in all its fullness.
Could I have the, the I don't know whether I've overrun or not, I've no idea. Could I have the band back up? Is that all right? Can we, could we do that? Let's have the band back up. I'd invite you all to stand. I'm going to just pray this, just allow a moment or two just to break off this fear and anxiety. You know, the, the enemy, it says in the scriptures, is always prowling around wanting to ensnare us. And I've, I'm a bit of a news addict, but I'm not watching the news quite so much. I can only handle so many desperate people. I check it once a day instead of three times a day. And that's a weakness in me. I don't know what. But the truth of the matter is, if I watch too much of it, I can be tempted to start feeling fearful myself. I'm prayerful. Don't get me wrong. But I don't want to be fearful. Let's just bow our heads. And you folk at home too, if that's you, just don't worry if the kids kick off. Don't worry about that. Just stand where you are, bow your head, and uh, I'm going to speak a word of command over you. But first, Jesus, let your peace come now. That peace that overrides all those fears and anxieties, those things that we've got to deal with and need to be dealt with, those challenges we face. Lord, just override that now. And if you've been aware of carrying some fear or anxiety, as that kind of hit home with you as I was speaking, just with your eyes closed, bow, head, bow, just raise your hand where you are now. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lot of hands gone up. These are challenging times. Now I'm going to clap my hands and Raise my voice, so don't let that alarm you. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, you know that the enemy is stalking, looking to see who he can devour and draw from the way. Lord, let your peace come upon us now. And Holy Spirit, as I speak the words of command in Jesus' name, just break off fear and let your peace, your peace flood into us. So in the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I break the power of fear off you and speak peace, that peace which God only can give. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Thank you.